Good morning. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Today, I'm talking to Professor Sara Dolnicha. She is a social scientist, professor at the UQ Business School, TEDx speaker, and author. Sara, thank you for joining me today. Very good to be with you. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Just to give us a little bit of context, today I wanted to chat about market segmentation and how that applies to smaller uh, and startup businesses, particularly in the IT and software space. But also just curious to know what led to your interest in segmentation in the first place? That's a great question because that goes 25 years back and it's all a bit blurred <laughs> by now. It was actually my PhD, and the starting point is uh, was methodological. So a lot of segmentation studies, quantitative studies, I hope we'll talk more about the different shapes of segmentation studies, but the real quantitative ones that use a lot of data. At the time I did my PhD, there was almost a routine process people used, and there were some quite fundamental flaws with that routine process. So in my PhD thesis, I set out to try to figure out if we can do it better. So that was really at the core. It was quite nerdy, very methods focused. And then uh, what followed was 20 years of really interesting interdisciplinary work with some of my colleagues, where I think we covered many different uh, aspects and facets of market segmentation analysis. Excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm really keen to get into some of the details there uh, to see how we can apply some of these more technical and, as you say, nerdy ideas to the, the, the everyday business here. Curious to know, in terms of market segmentation, is this a practical exercise for small business? And the context of this question is from working with a lot of startups and small businesses, the traditional theories of STP, segmentation, targeting, and positioning, I've noticed tend to get sort of forgotten when you join these types of companies and, you know, they lean more towards tactical execution. But, you know, is there a benefit doing to doing segmentation for a smaller business? It's not a benefit. It, it's of existential importance. And I'm happy you raised that because really there is this area of marketing, which is called strategic marketing. And there's this other area, which is tactical marketing. And all the common understanding and narrative and advice and consulting focuses very heavily on the tactical space. What's the tactical space? What's my product going to be like? How, what's the price going to be? How will I advertise? Where will I distribute? These are all tactical operational issues that need to be solved. And very frequently, the strategic marketing gets forgotten. But it's absolutely existential. In fact... Without the strategic decisions, you can run yourself into the ground real fast with tactical marketing, right? It's like if you want an analogy, the strategic marketing is about deciding which hill you're going to climb, right? The tactical marketing is what shoes are you going to wear and what backpack and how much water are you taking? So you can be the best equipped walker. If you're running towards the wrong hill, it's just not going to work for you. So it's all about strategic marketing, especially especially small companies, it's particularly difficult because they don't necessarily have the resources or the natural inclination to think real strategic and to think strategically again and again while their business is running. But it's super important. So absolutely. Why is it existential? You have a product, you want to sell it to someone. You've got to understand what that someone needs and you've got to understand what are you doing better than your competition. And those are the questions you have to answer in the strategic marketing, and that's where positioning and segmentation sits. 
Only once you figure that out, you can move on to thinking about where you're going to sell it, what the price is, and what the packaging is going to look like. Interesting. Are there any particular red flags that come up in businesses that you've seen that signal something's very wrong in terms of the segmentation? Either it hasn't been done or it's done, been done poorly. Are there any particular red flags that show? Well, I think the red flags occur when, when we are contacted at the point when everything's going downhill, right? <laughs> Everything goes downhill and then suddenly we need to figure out why. And the responses we get from the businesses are, but we're doing all of this. We're advertising, we're doing this, we're doing this. And you look at it and it's actually a kind of random mix of activities that is really not targeted. And as a consequence, it's not achieving much. It's just you know thought bubbles in various directions. And often when we have the conversation about strategic marketing, it is not understood. Like we have general managers going, well, what what do you understand as strategic marketing? So, yes, I think there's actually often a a fundamental lack of understanding how important that is. That would be my number one thing. Then you have to take them all the way back, those companies. And you have to say, well, who are you? What are you good at? Whose needs can you best satisfy? Yeah, because there's many use, there's many companies competing in whatever your space is. And unless you are, for some reason, better, distinct, different, why would anyone out there in the marketplace choose you over anyone else? Those are the really key strategic questions that need to be asked at the beginning and need to be reviewed regularly. Fantastic. It's interesting that you point out the lack of cohesion, because I think a lot of marketers in practice can feel that their efforts lack clarity and structure. Yeah, the thought bubbles is a good way to put it. Uh, you get lots of input from different people um, on what campaigns you need to run. But are there any other core benefits that you see uh, that people can expect if they implement the correct approach to segmentation in yeah. their business? I mean, the core benefit is that you will have, in, the, in a perfect world, you have a market to yourself, right? So if you say, I have a product or a service, and it is specifically targeted at a group that has those exact needs. And if you are the company that can best satisfy those needs, well, then you secure that entire part of the market, that entire market segment for yourself. That is the ultimate benefit and the, the, the core aim of what you want to achieve with market segmentation, right? If you do not segment, which means you're not aware of what your strengths are and what the market or market segment needs are, but then you're just one of many, right? And you're just constantly competing. You're much more tempted to compete on things like price. Well, that's very unhealthy for a company, right? Much better to compete on being the, the, the best product for someone's needs and then charge a premium. Then say, well, I've got like 200 competitors. How about I just try to be the cheapest? Uh, very counterproductive. So benefits are huge. The benefit is your long-term existence because you secure a good market that becomes loyal customers, that that shares word of mouth, increases your market share. That is why you want to engage in market segmentation. It's interesting that you point out the effectiveness of your marketing will increase by doing proper segmentation. It's what originally got me interested in this as a particular topic is that I had noticed from working with a couple of businesses that coming back to the tactics versus strategy is you can improve the operational efficiency and effectiveness of the tactics. But at some point I noticed a few of them had reached sort of diminishing returns in that we were hitting a ceiling and I wasn't quite sure 
what the issue was. And then I realized it's strategic. In one particular case, I noticed that the the audience by by targeting successful customers of the, the service, the audience had been more and more niche over time. So you're addressing less and less of the market with a sharper and sharper offer. But because no segmentation had been done, it hadn't realized that it would uh, navigate into sort of a small corner of the market versus a, a larger and more profitable group. And I think actually another thing can happen. The market can move away from you, right? That, that's why it's important that segmentation is not once and then never again. But you need to review it. Market needs change. So you need to constantly stay on top of the, you have to have the pulse of your market so that you do not narrow or do not steer off in a different direction. So your segment moves to a competitor. So getting into the practice of implementing segmentation and building that initial marketing strategy, what is the overall approach to doing this? So say a a marketing manager out there is listening and thinks, okay, I, I want to implement this in the business. How do I take this concept and apply it? Really important to understand. It doesn't have to be complicated. Right. The, 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 the variability of segmentation work is from having a chat with your clients at the one end to having thousands of data points and continuously segmenting your market. And either of them is better than nothing. So that's really important. So the worst thing for a company would be to say, well, this is too complicated and too expensive. So I'm not going to engage with it at all. So you can start at the very simple and cheap end if you want by literally having conversation with your customers and figuring out what is the need of the customer? What is it that they're unhappy about in terms of the current offerings? What would they want to see? What would meet their needs? That is already market segmentation work, right? And by asking yourself, what makes me special? So if I'm one of 10 companies offering a certain app, well, am I just one of 10? And it is just random which one someone chooses or what is it that's my unique selling proposition? So it can be very simple. You can then go further and further. You can do a few focus groups. You can start doing some surveys. And then at the far other extreme, I would say you could have continuous flow of data. That could be behavioral data, purchase data, or it could be continuous flows of survey data that you are almost continuously segmenting. And where an alarm bell rings, if something in your market segmentation changes, yeah, that's kind of the dream at the quite high end expensive quantitative side. But anything is better than nothing, right? So nobody should think to themselves, oh, that's just too complicated. I I just can't be bothered or I don't have enough money. Even if it's one conversation with someone in the market, that's better than nothing. Would it be more, understand there's no general rules, but is it generally better to talk to people in the market that that aren't already customers of your business to avoid that? selection bias or is it better to talk to customers of your own business first just because it's easier to access them or there's no real distinction there you have to do both right you have to do both because talking to your customer gives you the answer to the questions why are they buying my product so that that reflects your positioning right it tells you what do they think I'm doing particularly well you need to know that, that that's what makes you special to the people you've already won over But then there's all these other people that are not yet buying your product. So you need to talk to them and you need to say, why? What makes my product in your eyes inferior to my competitors? What can I not do that a competitor can do? 
So any good segmentation must contain both the people we already have on board so we can understand what it is they want and how are we so beautifully serving their needs. And also the people we are, we are not serving yet to understand why not. So one is about protecting my market share. One is about increasing my market share. Got it. Did you have any recommendations around the number of people that a business should aim to talk to? Obviously, one person would be too few, but better than zero. But then you could go the other side where a small business, it would not be practical to talk to, say, a thousand people. No, there is no... Well, actually, maybe I will give you a little bit of that's not specifically about market segmentation, but generally, if we stay at the very simple end of things, right, then there is something called data saturation, which people use when they have qualitative research. And it is a very simple principle, which I could offer as a possible practical bit of advice. If you have 10 conversations with your current customers and you find that after the 10th conversation, well, actually, let's say after the 7th, you are not learning anything new. You keep getting the same arguments. You've done enough. If you talk to 20 and still number 20 provides new insights, you've got to keep talking to them, right? So that's a really simple rule of thumb. If you are forced to rely on very simple approaches to segmentation, you wanna, you need the full insight. So if you can get that from two customers, wonderful. If you need to talk to 20 to get that, it's got to have to be 20. So so the, uh, the marginal new knowledge I get from every single conversation is a really good indicator of when, when you can afford to stop having those conversations. It's a very practical point of view because I can imagine, myself included, I would have intuitively thought, okay, maybe it's a number like 20, 30, something like this. But what you're suggesting is you could actually end up with a situation where you've talked to 20 people, but after the fifth person, you're basically hearing the same thing again another 15 times, and it's not a good use of your time. In terms of coming up with the questions? I think there's also the far other end, right? So we've been talking because we're specifically talking about smaller businesses, but if you go to the far other end where we start doing quantitative segmentation, that means we have a survey. Let's say we have their the, the benefits they seek from the product, right? And we have a whole list of them. And we want to ask many people about that. And then we want to use algorithms to create segments using data analysis rather than just conversations. But then there is another rule I can offer, which is a proportion between the number of questions and the sample size you need. So for every question, you need about 100 people, right? Mm-hmm. And that I, that's going to be a bit boring if I go into it, but it's basically an issue with the algorithm. So if you imagine... If you imagine having two pieces of information, so two survey questions, it's like spanning up a two-dimensional space. And if you imagine in that two-dimensional space, you have 10 consumers, you can just visually see that that's not very much. So if you ask a clustering algorithm to find a pattern in a space that's very scarcely populated, the algorithm can't do it. Everything you're going to get is pretty random. But if you have two dimensions and you have 500 data points, wow, then the algorithm has a genuine chance to find segments. So the more questions you ask, the higher dimensional space. So the more questions you ask, the more sample you need, the more respondents you need for the algorithm to be able to find anything reasonable from this data analysis. It's a great visual metaphor in a way of, as I understand it, you know, if you ask a an algorithm to paint a picture with just, uh, say, uh, red and blue dots, 
you could imagine just asking a hundred people who would be able to create something that's visually recognizable. But if you had asked it to paint a picture of a tree or recognize a tree with just red and blue dots, it wouldn't have enough fidelity. So what you're suggesting is if you ask more complicated questions, you need a lot more data for it to be more detectable. Yes, except I'm not saying complicated questions, but it's the number of questions. So it's not about the complexity of the questions, but it's, this is purely a data analysis thing, right? So every question is an additional dimension in the space in which the algorithm is trying to find your segments. So no matter what the content of the question, the more questions you have, the larger the space. So to find a tree in that space, right, becomes more and more difficult. Yeah. Understood. Before you mention talking to customers, and then we've talked briefly about running surveys, what is the major driver for going beyond talking to customers and using something like a survey? You mentioned qualitative analysis here. Is there a particular objective that this type of activity has in mind? Yeah, so the bit, the power of doing a quantitative analysis with large data sets compared to having a chat or two or 20 is that you can then also assess the size of the market, right? So optimally, you would have to have, you would, you would try to have a representative sample of people purchasing this kind of product. And so let's say from your conversations, you already have a good sense that there's people who like this kind of thing and there's people who like this kind of thing but you don't really know how many there are, right? You might be unlucky. And the one person you talk to is just a single customer on the whole planet. There's no second or third one of that kind. Once you go and collect data, you get a much stronger sense of of not only the nature of the segment, but also its prevalence in the market. So how many of these people do I have? And that's an important question for a business because ultimately you need enough to survive. That, again, there's no general rule. If you're a small company in the B2B space, 10 customers might be all you need for the rest of your life, right? Depends on your product, depends on your service. But if you want to know the size of your segment, then that's where the quantitate, the power of the quantitative analysis comes in. That's a great goalpost to understand when to cross the bridge into quantitative is we've talked to say 10 20 people we realize that the there are these dynamics and these differences in the people but without doing that quantitative analysis you won't know whether or not this group is large enough and worth targeting is that right that's right yeah fantastic when it comes to doing the segmentation in practice do you notice there are common things that people get wrong so the first thing you mentioned earlier was that people overcomplicate the process Was there any other general mistakes that you see people do in practice? So I see lots of mistakes in the quantitative space. And I think at the core of that mistake is a misunderstanding that segmentation analysis leads to a true result. It's really important to understand that market segmentation analysis is exploratory in nature. I know that's really hard to get your head around because you're using sophisticated algorithms. You know, you might be using neural networks, artificial intelligence, and it all sounds like whatever comes out at the end must surely be the truth. But actually, you can test it very simply yourself. You run it once again, and you will find that your truth changed. So all the algorithms we use in market segmentation are algorithms that are looking for patterns. So if you run them twice, and they usually have a random starting point in the algorithm, 
So you run them multiple times, you're going to get different results, right? So that to me, if you ask me what is the single biggest mistake, or maybe I will give you two, the sample size. So we see people uh, running data analysis with huge numbers of survey questions and very small samples of respondents that there's just no point even doing that. That is a total, total waste of even collecting the data. And the second error I would nominate is this, this belief that it's like adding two plus two gives four, right? Because two plus two always gives four. So four is the correct answer. That's not how segmentation algorithms work. If you think of our space, let's say we have 30 questions. It's a 30 dimensional space and the algorithm can start looking anywhere. And every direction it looks, it gives you a different picture. Yeah? So for you as a data scientist working with that kind of data set, it becomes really, really important to look at whether, at how stable your repeated analysis is. So let's say a customer comes to me, a big company wants to spend a fortune on collecting data and segmenting. What I would do, I would, okay, we collect the data. And by the way, collecting the data is also important because your segmentation is only as good as the data you collected. And there's also a lot of mistakes in survey design that then filter through to bad segmentation solutions. But now I have this wonderful, perfect data set. So, you know, the first thing I would do as a data analyst, is I would run it many, many times with many, many different algorithms, with many, many numbers of clusters. And what I learned from that is that in certain solutions, let's say certain numbers of clusters, I will see that repeatedly the same result comes up. If I see that, I'm very, very happy. Yeah? Actually, I should backstep two steps. Another mistake is that people believe that natural clusters of natural segments of customers exist in space like dumplings. They do not, right? Customers are like everything else. They're all over the place. So whenever we segment, we are really artificially creating our segments. So the confidence I have in an artificial segmentation that I can repeat is a lot higher than the confidence I have in a segmentation where I rerun the algorithm and suddenly it looks totally different. So, so the, uh, the acceptance that it's exploratory and then using, again, this is not complicated. Repetition is not complicated. Yeah? Using a few simple approaches to just making sure that you actually have extracted the most useful, managerially useful segmentation solution uh, would be my number one yeah, nominated uh, pitfall to avoid. It's interesting. There's so many things to pick out here. So you've mentioned, you know, filling up a survey with far too many questions, poor data analysis in, in not rerunning algorithms to analyze the results, poor survey design, and natural clusters or assuming that there are natural clusters. That's an interesting one because I had honestly assumed that with enough data, you could just eyeball the segments, but that seems not to be the case. Is that, uh, is that what you've seen? Yeah. So we, we actually classify, I'm not sure if I re even remember the terms we've created, but in our, we, we've done so many segmentation solutions. All right. So we've seen them all, honestly. <laughs> Plus we've created a lot of artificial data. Because when you develop algorithms, you've got to know the truth. And for real data, we never know the truth. So often we create data so we know what's in there. So we have data with dumplings, right, and data without dumplings. So we've looked at all, all these cases. And really, there's three types of segmentation outcomes. And I think the data analyst here has to be honest 
as they talk to the manager about these possible outcomes. One is the perfect world. I have never seen it. Hand on my heart, never seen it. That's the dumpling scenario, right? So that's the idea that I have a data set. I run a number of uh, repetitions and I always get these totally clear-cut solutions where a single respondent never swaps segments. Yeah, I have never seen that. So that is that is just people just need to get that out of their head. That's not how life works. That's not how consumers are. Consumers come in all shades of gray. So you can't expect they're going to be neatly uh, uh, classified in dumplings. At the far other extreme is is a very bad outcome. That's when you have to admit that you are just constructing segments. That's where the data analyst says, look, I can repeat it, slice it, dice it, run all sorts of solutions, and I can never, ever get any stability. Now, that is a realistic scenario people need to just accept. What does that mean? That means that the space of consumers in terms of their needs is spread across all dimensions. Every every need exists in the market. There is no need that's not in the space. Now, if that's the case, then the data analyst just has to go to the manager and say, okay, this is it. There are no, there's nothing even remotely looking like a segment. So now you and I need to work together and we need to use this information to construct the segment that is most useful to you. So again, if we think of a space, we have data everywhere. The job then becomes to identify the section of the data that you can best serve. So you could ask now, Sarah, is it even worth segmenting in that case? Absolutely, it's worth segmenting because you can't be everything to all people. So you then need to find which part of this huge space is your part and then figure out who these people are. And then the medium solution is that's the one I am most comfortable with, is where we know there's no real segments like dumplings in space, but there is a pattern. So there are certain need combinations that don't exist in the market. And that structure in the data does allow me to repeatedly reproduce similar segmentation solutions. If that's the situation we are in, I as a data data analyst am very happy because I can now go to the manager, I can say, look, this is what we have. And here's a few quite distinct groups of people. And you might want to think about those specifically because they seem to kind of have some validity in terms of their existence. Understood. In terms of Two, two things come out of this. The first impression is, could you share just a quick example of what one of these analysis algorithms may look like? I understand it's a, not a visual medium right now, but did you have any example of something that people might have already seen that is basically the same thing or uh, a common algorithm that's used in practice? Well, I'm going to try to visually describe <laughs> <laughs> just using words. So Let's go back to a really simple two-dimensional space, right? Let's, let's say that we have asked our, our customers two questions. How, let's say we're talking about telephones. We want to know how expensive is the telephone. That's one of our dimensions, like how much are you willing to pay? And on the other dimension is how sophisticated do you want the features to be, right? And now you can imagine in this space, you're going to have lots of dots, and each dot in that space is one customer. A classic approach to segmentation, and that can be, you know, classic K-means cluster analysis, for example, one of the most frequently used algorithms, would do the following. We would need to tell the algorithm how many segments you want. So let's say I say I want three segments. Then the algorithm will randomly put three dots in this space, right? Important, it's random. 
right? So the second time I do it, the algorithm will randomly choose three other dots. And these are, in, again, we go back to the visual, two dimensions. Let's say our customers are blue dots and our algorithm pops in three red dots. And the algorithm says, those are my segments. And then the algorithm goes and calculates the distance between every customer and each of the three segments. And it determines which cluster is the closest to each customer mm. and assigns it to that particular cluster. And then voila, we have the first segmentation solution, but it's not optimal yet. So in segmentation algorithms, they're usually iterative. They go through a number of runs. So we have our initial solution. And now we adjust our clusters to become better representative. So we move them in the center of all the consumers in that cluster. But the moment we move it, the distances change. So we do the same process again. We calculate all the distances with the, seg with the customers to the center of the segment, and we get a new one. And we repeat and repeat until there's no more change. And that's the solution for one particular run. We do it again. We get different random starting points. We end up with different segments. Aha, uh -huh. that's actually, yeah. I appreciate you doing this in a audio metaphor uh, or audio illustration. It's probably not the best way to present the information, but that's on me. So as I understand it, say you take that two by two, you take that matrix with these two variables on it and the, the, the dots are randomly spread. It's basically creating boundaries around groups at random testing to see what the distance between those the dots are in each group and seeing whether there's a, a common distance between them and then trialing over and over again until it's very stable in terms of, ah, these are always close together. These are always close together. Yeah. So what we want to do is we want to we want to minimize the overall distance, right? At the whole picture, we want a solution where if you add all the distances between the consumers and their segment representative, that needs to be minimal. The, the second thing that came out of this is it honestly sounds a little bit beyond the pay grade of a lot of founders I know. Is this something that you would see marketers and founders do themselves? Or is this something that you would absolutely want to engage an external expert in or a dedicated team member? Well, if we're talking like this kind of analysis, I think I really do believe that a founder or owner is better off just paying someone competent to run the analysis because it takes a lot of time to learn the tools, the most efficient tools to do this kind of analysis, right? They're not hard to do, though. Like if, if, if anyone's keen to learn, there's resources out there that guide you step by step how to do it. But of course, you know, company owners are busy. I'm not sure that they all want to become expert data analysts. Understood. I, I can think of quite a quite a few actually who wouldn't mind getting their hands dirty, but maybe not doing it over and over again. Maybe just the first time to learn yeah. it. Or some of them might have data analysis units, right? They may have a stats person on staff anyway. Well, for that person, it would be quite easy to actually all the all the code for those algorithms exists. No, nothing needs to be invented. It literally just has to be uh, executed. Excellent. And connecting this to, to our earlier discussion. So this is, you've done a survey of a certain size, and then you're able to pass that data on to either an internal or external analyst to say, hey, I'm looking for uh, the segments, please do some kind of algorithmic analysis. Would that be right? 
Yeah, I wouldn't tell them to do some kind of analysis. I would give them more, <laughs> more specific instructions. But yes, that's basically what you could do. But again, I just want to emphasize the data analyst can't do magic. So if the data set you hand over to them is poor, nothing's going to save you, right? The data analyst can't fix it. So um, I work with a brilliant data analyst and and she will refuse to, to work with me unless she's involved in the survey development. Wow. Because, yeah, absolutely. Because it's, you know, if you don't, if the data is poor, then, you know, the, the data analyst, of course, we can always run an analysis, but the value of the outcome is going to be very low. So thinking really hard about the survey. And in fact, even if you have all the money in the world, spending a lot of time in talking to customers in the qualitative side, which then informs the most informative survey questions is really, really important. That's a great piece of practical uh, guidance in that just knowing that it sounds like you're far better off engaging a data analyst early in the process so they can help inform the survey design and the data collection process. Before you mentioned survey design as one area of, of potential trouble, are there any major mistakes that you see people do that they should look out for? Oh, yes. Oh, I could go on forever about survey <laughs> design. So here's a simple one. Well, there's many, many. One, a simple numerical problem is that there is some kind of collective obsession about what is wrongly referred to as Likert scales. So you will have noticed whenever you do a survey, no matter what they ask you, they always ask you to answer on a seven-point degree-disagree scale, right? Very bad for segmentation. Also very bad for information, right? Because... A lot of things you ask do not at all lend themselves to that answer format. But for segmentation, it's, it's double bad because ordinal formats. So that means formats where we have a limited number of answer options, but we have no clarity on the distance between the answer options. Make it impossible to, to accurately calculate distance. And distance, as if you remember our little pictorial uh, experiment, is Clustering or segmentation is all about distance calculation, right? So if you have your data collected in a format that does not permit calculating distance, you have really shot yourself in the foot, right? So I would generally recommend binary, yes, no. Sounds counterintuitive, but for yes, no, the distance is very clear. So my preference is to have binary data for segmentation analysis. But if you feel that that doesn't capture accurately what's going on, you could go for a slider scale. For a slider scale, that means you kind of have a metric data. And then, again, at least the distance is clear. When I say distance is not clear, what do I mean? So we know that people have very different perceptions of answer options. Yeah? So you ask people about their satisfaction or dissatisfaction. You know, my cultural background is one of extremes. So I will never tick the midpoint. I will either be super happy or unhappy. And the, the jumps between these points for me will be very different than for some of my colleagues from Asian backgrounds who would never, ever tick the end point, right? And who, you see, so, so within people, it's different. Across people, it's different. Across people from different cultures, is different. And as soon as there is systematic variation in the use and the distance perception in the answer options, immediately the quality of your data drops. So that's just one point. But then I think maybe one that's also not talked about enough is just the simplicity and the clarity of the questions you ask. 
and really important in segmentation, no duplication. So segmentation algorithms really trip if you ask a similar questions five times. And you will say, why would you do that? Well, actually, it's very common. In the social sciences, very generally, in any survey I've seen, there is a bit of a belief, and we know where it comes from, that you need to ask many questions to accurately capture a construct. For segmentation, very, very bad. The, the algorithm is very confused, right? It's got like these five extra dimensions, which are very close together. Not good. So you want to ask very simple, very short, very clear questions that are distinctly different from one another. And you want to ask as few as you can get away with. Right? That would be my advice. Generally, everyone who, 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 every survey I have ever seen, including my own, <laughs> is way too complicated in the first draft. Yeah? You need to speak, you need to think of, you know, your grandmother who is answering the questionnaire while, I don't know, sweeping the driveway, right? So you have to assume the worst possible circumstance in which a person will answer this. And still, it's got to be crystal clear. There can be no ambiguity in the questions you're asking, no ambiguity in the kinds of things you're using. There needs to be no ambiguity with terminology. You know, often we put technical terms in. Well, that's useless, right? Your average consumer just can't respond to a question like that. So simple, short, non-redundant. I had uh, seen a stat, I think this was shared by yourself, actually, that it, if you use a, a five-point or seven-point scale, it's something like 47% of people will answer differently if asked those questions again. Is, am I remembering that number correctly? That's absolutely right, and it's quite shocking, but it's not talked about enough. So basically, again, it's about stability, right? If you are a, a, if you're a chemist or a physicist, you are fortunate to have a thermometer. Even a thermometer isn't 100% accurate. But generally, on any given day, you look at the thermometer under unchanged conditions, it's going to roughly give you the same measurement. This is absolutely not the case with humans, right? Measuring in a survey is not a thermometer. So there is always going to be variation in how people respond. And again, the credibility of your data depends on the reproducibility. So if I ask you the same questions after a week without external circumstances changing, you should be able to give me the same answer, right? In fact, I cannot offer you a single answer format that does that. Even if you have only yes-no options, still the, the number of identical responses will only be 80%, right? Wow. So again, it's just something we need to accept. We need to accept that humans answering survey questions is not a robot. There's going to be error in it. So binary 80%. Five, seven-point scale, you have the number. I forgot the number. I think for five-point, it's like 57. For seven-point, it's about 47, something like that. Let's say 50, just for the sake of the conversation. So just ha you have to just think about this. So basically, you're now using a data set. You've asked people to give you one of seven options. But for any of the options, there's only a 50-50 chance that you're going to get the same response again next week. You know, what, what's even the point of starting the segmentation analysis? Yeah? So stability of responses is really, really important. And the answer, you, what, what is the right? Everyone says, well, what's the best answer format? There isn't one. It depends what you, what you ask the person. If you want to ask the person, will you marry me? You would rather have a binary than a seven-point <laughs> response, right? 
But if you ask people about how satisfied they were with the service, well, then maybe binary is not right. Maybe it does require a different format. But but you're you're wheeling out the standard seven point agree disagree is not the solution. So for every question, you've got to think really hard, and you need to talk to your customers to figure out how do their brains plot the response. So what is the answer option that best captures the way they would like to express their answer? That sounds like almost a, a discussion in itself. Just get into a, a correct survey design. But unfortunately, I just have to move on to the next couple of questions. Two more questions just before we go. So I, I'd like to share a quick case study, if you're open to it, how you would go about creating segmentation in practice. So say you were dropped in to a, uh, a software startup, say it, it's got a couple million, uh, you know, one, two million in revenue already. So it's got some traction. It has an existing team and it's events uh, and an events meeting platform. How would you go about creating the segmentation if you were in the shoes of the marketing manager? Well, that's definitely a hot space to be in. So they would have done very well to, <laughs> to develop that before COVID. Well, so I think, but again, they're not the only ones in the space, right? There's a lot of providers in that space. And I would first sit down and do what we call a SWOT analysis. That's an analysis of strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. It's really important. It's underestimated because it sounds so trivial, but actually it's super important just to sit down with the team and figure out what are the opportunities? What does that mean? That's an external thing. So COVID, huge opportunity. Ongoing COVID, huge opportunity. There will always be the need for my technology, right? Offering that kind of platform where people can meet and have a conference. Threats. What's the outside threat to my product? Well, probably there is about 100 companies trying to do the same, right? Strengths, weaknesses are internal. So here's where we ask what makes us particularly good at this? Are we more able to adjust our interface to particular providers? Are, is our link more stable? Yeah, I'm not an expert, obviously, in that particular product, but it's about you and what makes you particularly good in that space and what are your weaknesses in that space. So I'd start off with that. And then I would start figuring out possible customers. So who are the possible customers? Well, it could be conference organizers, right? That's, that's already a distinct what we call a priori segment. So it means I know in advance that that segment exists, yeah? Conference organizers. It could be businesses that have internal meetings. Quite a different segment. Yeah, so I so then again we're just sitting and thinking through. All right. So if 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 we say we want to cater to the conference organizers, then we zoom in there, and then we need to understand the segments among those conference organizers. That's where it gets interesting. So I would go and I would start to have conversations or focus groups to learn what are these people's needs, what are their expectations, what have been past bad experiences. Maybe they'll tell me what products they've used in the past and they were unhappy with, whatever I can capture about their needs. And yeah, my customers, if I have any, of course, they would be the first people we'll talk to, right? So why did you choose us? Why do you stick with us? What's so cool? But also, what would you like us to improve? And that would what, what that would result, assuming we want to go to a quantitative analysis, what that qualitative phase would result in is my items for the survey right? 
basically their understanding of what is important, what annoys them, what frustrates them, all these things specifically to my online platform for events. Now I could go, but also things, for example, like would they even buy from me? Yeah. So a lot of conferences are organized by big publishers. So they will not even consider, no matter how good my platform is, they most likely have self-knitted their own platform and they will only use that. Right? So that's also important. Are these people even in the market or are they out of my market? Even if they want them as customers, they're never going to join me as customers. So once we've, we've kind of understood all the needs, frustrations, all these aspects, we could go and we could have a survey. As discussed, we want to keep it really nice and short, but we do want to have two things. We want to have what we call our segmentation variables. So they, they are the specific needs and frustrations. But what we also want to have is descriptor variables because we need to know who these businesses are or the people or who are these people, right? Then we would go and try to collect data from them. Then we would use the segmentation variables to create segments. And let's say we're fortunate, we find very distinct segments. One segment, for example, is just about stability. They want a no-fuss interface where there doesn't have to be any wells and bristles, no blurring backgrounds, no uh, outer space backgrounds, just want a stable connection with good audio, right? Then there might be a segment that says, well, we need it actually individualized with my brand identity in the background and blah, blah. So, so those are our segments. Good. That's great because once we see these segments, we already get a sense of where we are really good. Are we really good at giving you a bare bones, super stable, can't kill it solution? Or are we really good at other aspects? So let's say we're really good at the bare bones, stable solution. But then we look who are these businesses. And with a bit of luck, these are going to be specific businesses. They will not be spread all over the segments. But we will find these are businesses who are, let's say, they need to have short confidential meetings. They are in the finance sector. They, you know, they care about safety and stability. Wow, now we really got somewhere, right? Now we can say if that's our strength, but we're not going to waste our energy marketing it to some you know, regional festival that wants to have a few people online. But we're going to actually now start saying it's financial institutions who rely exactly on this. We know we're best in the market for this. And all of our tactical marketing will now focus. So all of our, every dollar of my tactical marketing investment, pricing, distribution, promotion, goes in the right direction. I'm not wasting it on segments that I'm not particularly good to serve. I'm not wasting it on segments I'm not really interested in serving because maybe the regional festivals, they want you to provide it pro bono anyway, right? So not an attractive segment. Very practical overview and it, it makes a lot of sense the things that you've mentioned in our discussion today and how they would be applied in practice quick question just before we go as well when do you recommend doing this analysis would you say at least once per year or is there any kind of rule of thumb that would be helpful to keep in mind tactical marketing decisions happen frequently they're usually annual decisions strategic marketing decisions are not annual decisions because to stick with your last example, if we decide we're going to cater to financial service organizations, I cannot possibly build a reputation as the primary provider for that sector and then turn around next year and say, I'm now adding regional festivals, right? So establishing that reputation, positioning yourself as the, as the first choice for that segment takes a long, long, long time. 
So it's not something you can do in twists and turns. Yeah? So that's really something you do at the start. However, I would strongly recommend you would review it regularly, not in view to totally change it all. But first of all, you need to monitor if your financial providers have changed needs. Yeah? So the market is not static. Just because you did one segmentation analysis when you first founded the company doesn't mean the market is going to keep behaving in the same way. So at the very least, there needs to be regular checks if we are still playing in the same playing field or if it's changed. And certainly you, you would then review regularly whether there is a possibility to maybe add segments, expand segments. A topic that's not discussed at all, by the way, is segment compatibility, right? So if you are doing the financial sector and you want to go into regional festivals, that might be a really poor choice because the festivals are going to go, well, we don't want to be associated with banks and the banks are going to go, well, that looks really unprofessional. But if you say, well, I'm already the first in financials, how about I go to insurance providers, right? They seem to have similar needs. They're moving towards that. All of these things are getting more important. So absolutely, you'd want to regularly review it, but not with the idea of totally changing it. But just monitoring, like taking the pulse, constantly taking the pulse of the market. And when you when you feel the pulse is getting a bit weak or it's changing, you've got to decide what, what action you might be able to take to either protect your segment or better enhance the service for the segment and attract maybe another one, two, three segments. That's a great point about you know appealing to multiple segments and keeping that in mind, whether or not you can make that crossover. I can imagine a lot of people listening would like to target more than one segment at a time. So that that's a great point to consider. I really appreciate the information you've shared with us today. I think it's been interesting to see how this is a topic I think that's not been well explained in practice. And I think there are a lot of really great practical takeaways. For people who want to learn more about you and uh, experience some of your work, where should they go? Well, for, for me, you can probably just Google me. I've done all sorts of things I'm excited about, from uh, market segmentation to environmental sustainability to foster care. But for those who are more interested in segmentation, we actually did, after 20 years, we had the urge to just write everything down. So we've written it all down in a book, which is free. So we're not trying to sell it to you. You can just download it at no cost. And because we said we want to make it really accessible, we've uh, produced a MOOC, a massive uh, open online course. That's also free. And so if you want to work with the book and then listen to videos that explain the theory or even listen to a brilliant data analyst walk you through the code with examples, all those resources are freely available and we would be delighted if people uh, saw benefit in using them. Fantastic. I'll make sure to put a link to both of those in the show notes. Otherwise, Sarah, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.